0: It's almost the end of February and it's not a leap year so I won't be proposing to my master investor colleague Jonathan Davis primarily because I think Mrs. Davis would have something to say about that and Jonathan I never Uh, get my I I hope you're right
1: about that, I'm not so sure but you know I hope you're right about that
0: (laughs) I never get my honey where I get my money but I think that's oversharing but um, February, lots of excitement this month in terms of Big round, tantalising, juicy numbers. Eight thousand. The Footsie one hundred almost breached breached its next resistance level, but we didn't quite make it. What was holding the market back from getting into the next level?
1: Well, the uh, the Footsie has not done badly this year. It's up uh, what around six percent, I think, this year, something like that. Uh, and as you say, touching these uh, close to. Uh, well, these all-time highs. Um, but mind you, you have to go back. 2018 was the last time that we were at this level, the target we have to breach. And before that, you have to go all the way back to 2000. So uh, it's been a long, hard slog for the UK market. And uh, so a little bit of 6% uh, you know, so far this year, that's, uh, that's encouraging. Um, but, uh, you know, the UK market is a very small part of the world index, equity index. Uh, it used to be 10% sort of back in uh, 2000. Uh, now it's uh, under five percent, uh, and most international investors, you know, it's, it's hardly a blip on their on their radar. And until we get a lot of uh, external, you know, foreign investors coming back to the UK market, it's not going to go roaring ahead, I don't think. And if you look at the valuations, they are cheap compared to uh, compared to a lot of other countries' markets. But uh, you know, uh, in the old days, we had a sort of golden rule when the yield was, uh, you know, the yield ranged between three and five percent. On the on the foot. See, And when it was 3%, it was expensive. And when it was 5%, it was it was worth buying. And it's currently uh, on a PE of 12.4 times and a dividend yield of 3.9%, which is sort of bang in the middle of the range. So it's 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 kind of quite good value, but uh, it's not particularly good value. Uh, so I think it's going to be quite a struggle to, um, you know, to make a really decisive breach through the uh, the all time high, though, you know, from a technical point of view, it looks quite good.
0: Is it all to do with the B-word, do you think, Jonathan, um, Brexit? Because you talked about the. UK market being almost like a minion in terms of the rest of the world's sort of indices. Is it because of Brexit? And I know at the moment that Rishi Sunak is on the cusp of a post-Brexit deal. Do you think if he broke as a deal that we our market may be taken more seriously?
1: Uh, yeah, I'm sure it might be a factor. I think, you know, the Brexit factor has been there for a while. It certainly was a factor uh, back in 2016. Uh, and it's one reason why the uh, UK market remains you know relatively cheaply valued compared to the rest of the world. Um, I don't think a Brexit deal will make a particular difference. I mean, it only really affects trade into uh, Northern Ireland. that's pretty, you know, that's absolutely minimal in terms of uh, uh, the world uh, economy, uh, though it has some important political ramifications. Um so i don't think it's very much to do the brexit i think it's to do uh, you know the, the way the uk footsie index performs is a lot to do with the makeup of the index and it's uh if it's um you know it's got a lot of miners and banks and, and big rather kind of low growth companies and i think it's really reflects the fact that the uh, you know the uk economy is a relatively low growth economy with a susceptibility to inflation and that hasn't really changed um so i don't think it's really about brexit anymore um, I just think it's about uh, the kind of market we have. I mean, compare, it's worth comparing the FTSE with the UK small cap and mid cap indices, which reflect the domestic economy. They're still down uh, quite a lot um, uh, over, you know, since the start of last year. And, uh, you know, we're kind of, we're we're in the slow lane, I'm afraid, at the moment and have been for for a while.
0: So, in terms of the domestic economy, what are the trends? Because I understand that a very learned survey came out last week, which, on on first hearing, sounded like dim sum, but it's not that, is it?
1: <laughs> not dim sum, though. No. It's not dim sum. It's not. A, it's not a culinary treat. Uh, a survey. It's uh, It's an annual study that comes out from uh, uh, three academics from London Business School who've been uh, well known. Uh, people called uh, Dimson, Marsh, and Staunton. So that's Elroy Dimson, Paul Marsh, and Mike Staunton, uh, two professors, former, you know, retired professors now, they've been around for a long, long time, uh, helped to discover the, uh, in fact, helped, in fact, designed the FTSE 100 Index, believe it or not, which was introduced in the 19, early 1980s, as I'm sure you'll remember. Uh, and uh, the first market capitalization-weighted index for the UK market, and that was designed by, uh, by Professors Marsh and Dimson. Anyway, they do this annual study uh, of long-run historical returns from equities, bonds, and inflation all around the world, global investment returns. It's called the Global Investment Returns Yearbook for that reason. And every year they add a couple of sort of features to, to think about particular themes. Uh, and, it's, and it's always interesting, I mean, because, you know, there are some long-term uh, parameters around investing in equities, bonds, and property, and so on. Uh, and they kind of hold you within limits. Um, and you can see where we are relative to where we've been in the past. And I have to say, unfortunately, this year <laughs> their uh, their their message is quite uh, is quite gloomy. I mean, they've been talking about the um, you know the real rates of return that you can expect from your investments. In other words, after taking account of inflation. Inflation obviously has 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 gone up, as we all know, last year, and is coming down, but we don't know how fast or how far it's going to go. Um, but anyway, they do some calculations based on their sort of expected future returns uh, from the major asset classes, and they are saying that from here, uh, or at least for generations, Generation Z—that's the most recent uh, cohort—returns um, are going to be lower than they have been uh, for, you know, the, the baby boomer generation, my generation, uh, which have done exceptionally well by historical standards, uh, though we didn't know that when we were born. So, just to give you a number on that, if you take a a 60-40 portfolio uh, and the uh, expected, well, the the premium, if you like, the the excess rate you make from a 60-40 portfolio uh, after allowing for inflation uh, for baby boomers uh, has been 5.6%, which is in real terms, that's a kind of long run rate of return. Uh, And uh, for uh, Generation Z, it's only going to be 3% if you take a a, a 60-40 portfolio. And if you compound that over time, that does mean that uh, generally you know the the latest generation the youngest generation uh, are not going to make as much money uh, from their portfolios over the next 20 30 years as uh, as we were lucky enough to do so that's a kind of sobering message if you like uh, it just reflects the fact that interest rates have been so low real interest rates have been negative for a while thanks to central bank policy and it's a very short term policy it's taking from you know it's it's taking from the younger generation in order to give to the Uh, older generation and uh, I think that you know the uh, the bill for that's going to come in and unfortunately uh, it's going to be paid by the younger generation.
0: Okay so what can the younger generation do? How can they make their money? Are they all going to become social media influencers and live off the advertising revenue or you know get down to to pit? I mean what can they do? Should they just forget about investing as you and I understand it?
1: No, I don't think they should forget about investing. I mean, to be fair, I mean the this could all change if if it's all the question of when you get your money into the market. Now, if you're still young, okay, you're still at the early part of your of your working career. Uh, if you put some money into a pension, that will do that will do fine. But the early part of it won't make as much money as the later part. So if we have a next time, we have a really bad bear market and a real crisis of some sort. Uh, That will be the time to put more money into uh, into your pension. If you're a young person, you definitely should be investing because even any kind of positive real return over the longer term is going to be helpful to you when you're old. uh, And you are going to live a lot longer, you know, unless on current trends, you're going to live to be 100, probably. uh, If you're uh, if you're if you're born uh, in the last 20 years or so, good chance of being living to 100 if you're in good health. So, you know, you've got to be investing, um, but you've also going to have to you know, you're going to have to work harder and longer, uh, I'm afraid. Um, so you know what would I what would I recommend? Well, I mean you could sort of bump your parents off. That would be quite a good thing because the flip side of all this is that the baby boomer generation has uh, has got uh, has got a lot of money. Or maybe your grandparents start with the grandparents first. Um, you know, slip something in their tea. Uh, that would be quite helpful because then you can inherit quite a lot of money into you know to kickstart you on that way, uh, <laughs> because there is a lot of accumulated uh, wealth in the uh, in the older generation. So that would be a start. But then I mean you just got to you know. Uh, do what you do um obviously it helps to be educated helps to, it gives you a better chance of getting a good job you know you can still become a lawyer for christ's sake and uh, you know lawyers are doing okay um <laughs> uh, and all these other things but you know hopefully they're all going to be entrepreneurs and make lots of money for the wealth wealth of the country even if it means having to travel abroad or you know whatever but uh
0: if they, you if know, they keep can. the faith keep the faith okay well if they can travel abroad again you know that brexit word um and I'll just slip in a quick disclaimer here. We're not encouraging you on this podcast to actually do as um Jonathan suggested, please don't <laughs> slip anything into your grandparents or your parents' tea. Um, it's just a joke. Now, um, earlier on, I very crassly, I said, you know, go down to pit. Now, I am a colliery girl. And when I was growing up, commodities was, um, was coal, coking coal, uh, smokeless fuel, which is what we used to use to keep the house warm. So, in terms of the, the survey by Mr. Dimsum and uh, and friends, what did they have to say about commodities? Because, of, of course, commodities is much more than coking coal and and fuelless energy.
1: Right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There's uh, there's so many commodities, different types. We've got precious metals. We've got soft commodities. You know, food, agricultural. Uh, And we've got energy. Uh, Those are the those are the main ones. Um, And uh, they're all uh, have different characteristics and that's the interesting thing about them. Um, But you could, you know, you remember all those movies about investing in commodities back in the 30s or even in the in in, in the 19th century. Um, People have always been drawn to commodities. But, you know, the historical evidence is clear that if you invest in individual commodities, i.e. oil on one hand or, or metals or whatever it might be. Um, the long-run return from commodities is basically around zero in real terms. The long-run return, uh, and that's because they are commodities. So you know they're they're generally available, uh, and if the price goes up, you get more of them because people produce more of them, and so on. So that's been well known. But what what the interestingly they found in uh, in their long-run historical survey of commodities is that if you invest in commodity futures uh derivatives you never actually uh, you know take delivery of these of these uh, products but if you invest in futures um uh, collateralized futures i mean uh, slightly complicated to explain that but basically they found that that was much much better way of investing in commodities uh individually they all make some kind of positive return uh with with volatility and so on over time but if you actually own a basket of them all an index of them all Uh, in theory, you get actually better returns than you do for investing in equities. And who would have thought that? Um, So a a collateralized index of of, um, commodities uh, over time will produce uh, very, very good returns. And more than that, the other point they make, which I think is interesting, and people don't often get this right, is that uh, commodities are... At least this, uh, this way of investing commodities is an effective inflation edge. And that's really not surprising because quite often, if you look back at our periods of high inflation, they've been driven by periods of high commodity prices. Uh, and commodities do well uh, in periods of rising inflation, uh, which is not the case for equities, bonds, and property. We all know, we all say that equities and property are real assets. In other words, they do make a positive real return after inflation over long periods of time. But actually during periods of inflation, they're not as they're not an actual hedge. In other words, they don't compensate you fully for the impact of the inflation. So uh, and I think we're seeing that at the moment. You know equities are a, a real asset, but they haven't really protected you against this uh, this recent inflation, far from it, you know last year down 20% or whatever it was. So uh, commodities are a place to be and you need them if you want them as insurance uh, against inflation, they are the only effective hedge other than gold. Uh, and precious metals, which also have that effect of having some positive uh, negative correlation with inflation. So you know it's a very very uh, sorry, positive correlation inflation. Um, it's a very, very interesting uh, observation. Now the problem is you'd say to me immediately, well, how do I do that? How do I buy this index of collateralized uh, futures? Uh, and the problem is um, you could buy an ETF, uh, but they're not a perfect match uh, for what the strategy that their uh, professors are talking about. Uh, and the other problem is that, uh, unfortunately, supply of commodities is limited. So if everybody did it, just as with every other kind of investment, if everybody does something, price comes down, too much demand, uh, it would the effect would probably go away. And um, something similar happened in the 1980s with these two professors. They also were one of the few first academics to highlight this what's called small cap phenomenon in the UK, which is that small companies on the whole do better over time, uh, more than you would expect, even allowing for risk. Um, but when they announced they discovered this in 1985, everybody piled into smaller companies as a result, uh, and the effect disappeared for about seven years. Uh, so you didn't actually see, get the benefit of it because the herd was going into this thing. But uh, the general principle remains true that therefore, you know, commodities are something useful to have in your portfolio as a diversifier. Um, and the way you do that, I mean, some of the indices you can get ETFs, Goldman Sachs, have it, have a commodities index. Uh, and so on but um, they're they're not perfect unfortunately ways to replicate this but it does underline this point about uh, diversification and an inflation hedge which is what most investors need
0: so i'm assuming that this survey is an annual one because of course we are now it's um one year into the um the ukraine russia's invasion of ukraine and of course this this month we've had the awful earthquakes in turkey so The survey, does it point to reference larger macroeconomic events as having significance on investments and markets?
1: Yes, I mean, over time, that obviously is the case. Um, You know, and if you look, you know, the the most obvious examples are wars, uh, First and Second World War and uh, a revolution. So, you know, the Russian stock market, uh, you know, came to an end in 1917 when the Bolsheviks took over. And similarly, the Chinese market was closed for a long period when uh, Chairman Mao came along after the war. So, uh, yeah, so, (laughs) you know, bad things do happen. And that's one of the messages they have. You know, they're they're very, of course, being academics, they uh, they take a rather kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for, Um, slightly kind of ivory tower approach to this. Um, But they do, you know, these points are important. You know, if you invested in Russia last year, for example, you know, the market's been closed, you can't get your money out. Um, you know bad things do happen and that's another argument for diversification so they are big proponents obviously of global diversification you want to have uh you know money all over the place so that you don't suffer when things go bad and and yeah famine would be a good example uh, Wars are the most extreme example normally um you know we there's no doubt that the war in Ukraine will have a long-term uh, consequence uh, for stock market returns um but uh you know, that's life that's what comes around and uh, if you've got a long-term historical perspective i think the difference is you'll realize that these things do happen the pandemic happened you know another example um you know, many people when they start investing that is rather a sort of naive view that if only they get the right thing that's going up the most they will do well well you know um uh, you should mention bitcoin a good example here you know if you think you're going to make all your money out of bitcoin over your, over by investing just in that you know, you're, uh, you're slightly delusional, I think it's fair to say, though. Bitcoin has performed well in the last few months. And no doubt the animal spirits in the Bitcoin community are, are rising again. But uh, history suggests you don't want to put all your all your eggs in one basket. Certainly not a very um, uh, untransparent one like Bitcoin.
0: So finally, Jonathan, I know that you don't operate on a calendar month by month basis, but we are just going into March what are you looking for what will what surveys might come up on the the March horizon
1: okay well March is always an interesting month it's the final month of the financial year it's when people tend to make their you know investment decisions they all leave it to the last moment of the year and then decide what to do with their ISA and so on not a very good idea actually in principle but uh, much better to do it in the summer Summer tends to be slightly weaker than in this period because everybody is putting their money in at this stage. So what am I looking out for? Well, uh, we've got a budget, of course. Um, I want to see whether, um, uh, you know, whether taxes are going up as much as we think they are, Um, whether any changes that might be relevant. Uh, They are going up, you know, from next financial year. So you need to be aware of that. Um, And, uh, yeah, I mean, I suppose the question is, you know, what's going to happen to the markets this year? I'm still fairly negative about that. Um, but you tend to often get a very strong period in the first three months of the year, and then it fades away during the summer. And comes back in the in the autumn. I would expect that to happen. Um, but the big news will continue to be what's been you know preoccupying us now for the last fifteen months, which is uh, central banks. What are they going to do with interest rates? Inflation? How fast is it coming down? Uh, and how are companies you know performing? Uh, we haven't yet seen whether the company earnings are going to come down uh, as many expect, or whether by some miracle we're going to see a avoid this uh, recession or hard landing that uh, that uh, more conservative uh, anxious investors are have been worried about but uh, yeah so more of the same i'm afraid
0: okay jonathan thank you very much it's always a, a pleasure and i hope that uh, mrs davies doesn't give me a bunch of fives give me what what for for my provocative intro earlier on thank you
1: not at all. Well, uh, <laughs> we'll find out. If we don't have another one of these, you'll know what's happened. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, well, maybe. Maybe, my children, maybe my children have taken, uh, my grandchildren have taken, taken my advice and, uh, you know, they've combined to slip something in my teeth.
0: Oh, well, let's not, let's not have a morbid march. I look forward to speaking to you the, <laughs> the same time at the end of March. Thank you, Jonathan. Appreciate it. Thank you.
1: Not at all. Pleasure.
0: This podcast was brought to you by Master Investor. For more investment and economics analysis, please visit masterinvestor.co.uk.